turn to James 5. Let me just exhort briefly before we finish up. James chapter 5. As we were just praying there, I use this example because it's dear to me, but uh, you can't, well, I would say you can have too much light. Yes, you can. But when it comes to God, you can't have too much light. And with all the caving we do, I love how technology has kept advancing lighting. Um, and to use it as an example, we're walking in a dark day. We ought to be hungry for more light. We ought not see how far we can go with a Bic, Zippo lighter, or a birthday candle. I, they're not friends. Their acquaintances have discovered a cave in this region that could be Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. And I don't know how much I can share. Well, just super anonymous, super general. You, I don't even know where the cave is. I just know the general direction. They've mapped it. They, it's, it's scores and scores and scores of miles. But they have found the torches of Paleolithic people who have explored it. And they think what they have is the deepest known discovery of remains, human remains, of amateur cave exploration. And they have found the bodies. They're skeletons now and the torches. And it's, if you know anything in this arena, not that you would have to, you guys don't, but you can tell where they've gone along the way and trimmed their torches on the, on the roof. And then they tossed it and had another torch. Well, I mean, I, I think they said 30 miles back in this cave. Don't quote me. All of it's still hush-hush. They're still mapping. It'll hit Nat Geo eventually. I just know this through my community connections. But can you imagine, again, I don't care if you're young earth, old earth, let's just say Paleolithic is accurate. Eight or 9,000 years ago, you're a couple of loincloth Indians and you're up in a cave 20 miles back with a brush torch. You're asking for trouble. And these remains indicate, oh, they ran out. Not just food, light, done. There's no reason in this day and age to be caving through the darkness of this age with a Neolithic torch. And there's no reason in this day and age with all the light available to us to, to take what God has given you through the illumination of doctrine and understanding and, and say, mm, I'm going to go back a couple iterations. Uh, for what it's worth, with all my caving right now, I cave with about what's considered a 1,000 lumen light. And that is really way too much for most of what I do. Uh, about a year or two ago, I bought a 4,000 lumen light that's brighter than your car headlight. And I took it underground and I said, this is, this is stupid, ridiculous. So I swapped it to Dylan. He bought me the 1,000 lumen lamp. We just traded up. 20 years ago, I was stoked to have 200 lumens. And five years before that, if I had a 70 lumen halogen bulb, man, I was in high cotton. I don't even know what that means, but I felt like I was there. It... it, it the technology was so crummy. You had halogen and then xenon bulbs and your little petzels. And a lot of those guys were going back to the old carbide lamps from the coal mining industry. I, I have coal mining here. I have two vintage. They're probably 150 years old, but I cave with one of them. Jeff Harris and I used to cave. I would use it because the carbide lamp, which runs on calcium carbide, which I think is CaCO4, CaCO4 would mix with water, produce acetylene gas, and it would put a torch out on your forehead. So you basically, you had a combustible bomb right here on your forehead, but it's what they mine with coal, coal with forever. It puts out a pencil lead thick torch light, probably about an inch and a half, two inches, depending on the pressure built up right between the squares of your eyes. Acetylene gas, you had an acetylene tank on your forehead 
and puts out a white light. The, the torch, the flame is about that long and it curves up at the end. It's thick pencil lead and it puts out more light than the halogens did 20, 25 years ago. So I would, I, a lot of us went back to the old cal, uh, calcium carbide coal mining lamps. It would be so stupid, beyond stupid, to now purposely go back to that. It would be beyond stupid to now go back to halogen bulbs that even when you had a really bright one, it still had all these concentric rings of darkness because of the way the bulb worked. Why would you not go with the most cutting edge technology that fit your need when you can have all sorts of shades of light from blue or from light from cool to warm, pure light on a battery that'll last you 30 or 40 hours and low setting lasts you for five or six days and the batteries are 10 bucks. You can have five of them in your pocket. You could be underground for a year if you wanted to be. Slight exaggeration, but not much. Yeah, we've been given 4,000 lumen lights for the day that we're living in. And some of us choose to not only take our bulb and downgrade it, but then rub mud on it and navigate by that. And with what we've been given, we ought to run with it. There's nothing cooler than, again, if you've never been caving, you wouldn't appreciate it, so just take my word for it. Dropping into a room and realizing I need to crank my light up a couple notches to light this whole thing up and being able to. What we've been given through hundreds of years of American Christianity and then 120 years of Pentecost and then 50 years of Word of Faith and now the teaching revival and better doctrine, we've been given all the lumens of light we could ever possibly need so that there's no reason we should ever trip or stumble over anything, why would we be dialing it back when we don't have to? Why would we purposely handicap or govern ourselves into darkness when we don't have to? But Now, we know we're going to, or some will, because the Bible says that gross darkness will cover the, the people thereof, but the glory of the Lord is supposed to be seen upon us. So why not steer into more light? Um, there are... For what it's worth, just to show you how technology, 2002, I got my first real LED light, 200 lumens. It was about a $450 setup. Pretty expensive caving light, 2002. 200 lumens. Today, I can get 4,000 lumens for less than 100 bucks. And that's way more than I'll ever need. And they even sell 10,000 lumen setups. And honestly, those things you can't keep on for very long because they produce so much heat. The heat sink can't keep up and it automatically clicks off to dial it back. I don't even know that helicopters don't need 10,000 lumens. I mean, 10,000 lumens is beyond what a seeker friendly church will crank out on during its worship time. We have the son of God. We have light in its perfect purity to navigate these dark days with. Why would we go back? Why would we turn off the light? Why would we purposely rub mud on our lens and say, that's good enough? Or please, no, I don't need any more light. Why would we bother to venture through life and purposely click our light down, cycle it down through all the different stages? The, uh, I'm, uh, it's exciting to be able to get into a dark room and just keep cycling up till you go. 100 lumens, 300 lumens, 700 lumens, 1,000 lumens. Let's see, 2,000, there's 4,000. The cool thing, and then I'll move off this caving, at 4,000 lumens, you can make any rock face look white. It becomes blinding. You can take a tan or a gray or a dark gray limestone, banger or Warsaw formation. You can make it blind you with that much light. What is not reflective becomes white reflective with that much light. All on your forehead with a little battery, no acetylene bomb. Actually, some of the old cavers used to make acetylene bombs, so it can be done. Anyway, 
fun exploration. It's also why coal mines would blow up because they had a torch and they'd hit methane game, game, uh, gas pockets. That's why you also would have the canary. You'd send the canary first because if the canary dies of gas, methane, you definitely don't want a torch on your forehead going down in there. All right, you're in James 5. Be light, be light, be light. All right, we've been teaching on James. We're going to finish up. I've already recorded the first message for when I'm out of town next week. We'll move, we're moving into 1 Peter. And then tomorrow I'll record 1 Peter chapter 2. So you guys will get to have me for all these Wednesdays. You don't get to miss me. Somebody else will be preaching. My wife has the first Sunday. And then who has Sunday night? I've already forgotten. Pastor Cable. Pastor Cable's like, I, I do. I've already canceled my church. Pastor Cable's preaching Sunday night. And then the next Sunday morning, Dr. Cephas is preaching. And then what I'm very excited about is the next Sunday night, Miss Kylie's going to minister for 15 or so minutes on praise. Then the team's going to praise for three songs. Then she's going to teach on worship for 15 or 20 minutes. Then you guys are going to worship for three or four songs and just watch the anointing go back and forth. Very excited about it. She's nervous, so pray for her. But she also has learned by now if I require it of her, the Holy Spirit will help her do it. Amen. So we're going to finish up James. Remember, James was written... Uh, to the, the believers, the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad. Many believe that has to do with the persecution of Acts 8.1. They scattered abroad because they did not obey. Pastor Ron used to teach, if you don't obey Acts 1.8, go into all the world, then you'll get Acts 8.1. And they were scattered abroad. <laughs> so obey so the Lord doesn't have to force his hand upon you. So they're scattered abroad. So it's a very Hebrew very Jewish epistle because these are early believers. It's about 45, 48 AD. So you're talking not more than 15, 16 years after the resurrection of Christ. That's as long as I've been pastoring. So think about this epistle being written today. Jesus ascended when I took over 2007. He did not ascend in 2007. So please don't mishear me, but that gives you a period of time. So how much have we grown in 16 years, 17 years? That's about the time between the ascension of Christ and the authorship of James epistle. Not really a lot of time. Still a baby church, still very Jewish. One of the things we see, one of the main themes of, J of James is unity, unity, unity. We see that over and over again. Almost every chapter is dealing with unity in some form or fashion. The other theme that arises is money. And that's where chapter 5 picks up. Now it's interesting. They've been scattered abroad. They're no longer in Jerusalem. They have left homes. They've left the commonwealth. They're now in what's called the diaspora, or the diaspora, however you want to pronounce it. I pronounce it diaspora. I've heard others pronounce it diaspora is how some people, it, it just means the world of Judaism or the world of the Christians. Anyway, they've been scattered abroad and they've already reestablished their life. And even in reestablishing their life, just maybe 10 years past Acts 8, they've already got carnal issues again. They are a small group of believers and they're already nitpicking at each other. James is already having to encourage them, get along, get along, get along. I mean, you don't even have homes anymore. You have that in common. You're not even in Jerusalem anymore. You have that. In, for all that you have in common, you find ways to not have anything in common. And doesn't that sound like the church today? So that's a common theme throughout it. It also lets us know, know no matter where you find yourself in the body of Christ in the world, the same rules still apply. You can be in prison and the, the Lord's going to be speaking to the inmates in prison who are believers. Get along. Fellowship. Come to church. Forgive. Even in prison, he's going to say, watch what you eat. You're getting kind of heavy there. You got 15 to 20 left to go. And now we're talking pounds, talking years. <laughs> the rules still apply whether you're under communism or whether you're in the U.S. of A. worshiping Jesus, whether you've been scattered abroad or whether you are where you need to be. 
by your own hand or God's hand. But the other theme is money. And we would, I would probably safely say cautiously that this is an epistle written to many money-obsessed believers. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins. Now, we know there aren't any chapters or verses in the original epistle, but it was a good break. It's also a break in the original text. I'm going to read it in New Living Translation because we see how brutal this epistle is. I think we're recognizing with some of these modern uh, translations, the Bible's not as friendly as uh, the seeker-friendly movement rewrote it to be. And it's one of the benefits of teaching exegetically like this. You don't get to cherry-pick the feel-good message. You don't get to cherry-pick the feel-good verses. You've got to read all of it. You've got to eat the bitter parts. There's some bitter herbs in and around the bone and the meat and the sinew. So James 5.1, New Living Translation, they'll put it up. And somebody did notice, I'm reading out of the newest version of the New Living, which is 2000, I think, what did we say, Brett, 15? Even my kids said, Daddy, your New Living Translation is different than ours. I think they have the 2009. They're, they're always updating it, and that's one of the reasons we have to be cautious. I read out the classic Amplified. There's a newer Amplified that's a little bit more woke. Removes all the language about submitting to your husband. Dials it back real conveniently. Steve-O says, real convenient. Yeah. So when you get an Amplified, ask, is it classic or is it going to burn a bra for me? Does it believe I should submit to my husband or that he should submit to me? James 5.1. Look here, you rich people. Wow. That's not a way to build your church or raise capital campaign funds. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. I didn't hear that verse ever taught in the 20 years I was a part of the Word of Faith movement. Never heard it. Ever. We selectly, we, we cautiously avoided that because it undermined buying jets and Rolls Royces and Rolexes. And yet here it is. What I find fascinating, King James says, weep and howl. It's a command. Hey, rich people, is that you? Here's a command for you, okay? Get ready, get ready, get ready to weep and howl. <laughs> this is where all the poor people are like, praise God. Whew, this ain't me. <laughs> Hallelujah. But what I find fascinating, this is not the first time this epistle addresses rich people. And as I read all through James, you can see James writing and he keeps landing on rich people. And he kind of moves on and then lands on rich people again. And I totally relate preaching where I'm preaching on something and then something comes up. And I think, why is that coming up? And it's because the Holy Spirit is wanting to accomplish something. This does not mean my sermons are an epistle. So let's be clear on that. But it is still the movement of the Holy Spirit to want to help somebody. If you stream Sunday school, I was teaching on demonology, and I kept dealing with a Jezebel and controlling your husband just by cutting your eyes. And we teach on that about once a year, but it just kept coming up over and over again. And I thought, now, who is doing this? There's only like 10 people in the sanctuary, only two ladies. Kylie's one of them, and she's right with her husband. And the other one's Jessica. She don't have a husband yet, so it can't be them. And yet it just keeps coming out. And then after Sunday school was done, somebody texted me and said, that was me. <laughs> they did. They said, that, that Je they said, that Jesse stink has been all over me. And they said, thank you for pastoring me. And I said, hey, thank you. That, that really blesses me. That takes great humility 
And, and to give her credit, she said, I recognize I'm to be my husband's helper, not his disapprover. Wow. That's powerful. That's a very mature believer to not get offended, but to say, that's me. Guilty. But for in my sermon, just a 45-minute sermon, I just kept getting pulled to that. I see James is doing the same thing. He's talking about, if you need wisdom, ask, and you rich people better be glad you're getting humbled. Like, where does that come from? You were just talking about, if anybody lack wisdom, let them ask Father give liberally, upbraid not. And, and, and you poor people, rejoice in that you're promoted. And you rich people, be glad you're humble because you're going to fade away like a flower on a hot day. And I'm sure James is like, well, I don't know where that's coming from, but write it down. <laughs> so you see him address rich people in James 1, 10 and 11, if you want to write that down. But the, the rich, let them rejoice in that they're made low because as the flower of the grass, they'll pass away. For the sun is no sooner, sooner risen, sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withers the grass and the flower there falls and the grace of the fashion of it perishes away. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Well, this epistle started off real encouraging and now he's talking to the rich believers and saying, you're gonna die. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, I'm sure James felt better. So he continues on writing his epistle. But then the rich come up again in chapter two. Verse one, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor man, stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then become in yourselves and as become judges? Excuse me, are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom whom he hath promised to them that love him? Here he's dealing with rich people again. And then verse 6 and 7, but you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called. Obviously, not every rich man is a blasphemer, but you can see James is dealing with the cultural pressure on these new believers. He's running rich people down. Twice he's talked about rich people, and it's not in a positive light. But we know there's not a problem with money. Money's not the problem. It's the love of money. Abraham was wealthy and he was the friend of God. Job was incredibly rich and he glorified God. And then there's David, amazingly rich and never sinned against God with all that money. So money's not the issue, but we see there's a cultural aversion, a cultural hangup here. Wherever these Jews, now believers, have been scattered, they've landed somewhere and money has become their entrapment. Now, this is fascinating because money is not discussed this much anywhere else in the entire New Testament. There's not a single epistle that it touches money and rich people like James does. That lets us know it's a cultural and a sinful issue he's having to lean against. It should also be noted the Word of Faith movement never taught on prosperity out of the book of James. Except for if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of the Father. Same goes for money. If any man lack money, let him ask of the Father who give it. Well, okay, why has it always got to be about money? Did you not see the whole picture of James? James is not the epistle you want to take money from. James is the epistle you want to stay poor in because if you're rich in James, you're in trouble. Chapter uh, verses 15 and 16. 
If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, and be ye warm and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. This is another subtle dig at riches. You have all this money, you do nothing with it. And he ties it back to, you have riches, but you don't have faith. It's a pretty hard dig. And then he addresses it again in chapter 4. Verse 2, you lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Think of that in terms of a money-obsessed church. And Steve-O and I and Gertie, we attended a church in Indianapolis that was a very hyper-prosperity church. We were only there. I was there maybe nine months. You were there maybe 10 or 11 months. Pastor was a good man. He was probably once greater. He was supernatural. But if you were to define the church by anything, it would be money. And the only thing I can say that saved his bacon is that he never said, give to me. He just said, God wants you blessed. God wants you blessed. God wants you blessed. And this church, to come into it, to step into this church from the outside, you would find yourself all of a sudden consumed of wanting the nicest things possible. Would you agree, Steve-O? All of a sudden, we're being encouraged to go look at expensive cars. We're being encouraged to go shop for expensive watches. Not to buy, but just to build a picture. I was there for nine or ten months. We never once evangelized anybody. I even asked about it. Does this church do any door-to-door evangelism? Oh, yeah, we do. Never did. Not while I was there. I can, I can hear these kind of scriptures being spoken to a church like what I was in. Because when, when you have a big... Uh, socioeconomic spectrum and very wealthy people rolling up in Mercedes S-classes and Mercedes and and high-end cars. And then you have the lower income folks. It was Indianapolis. So there were a lot of single black moms there because we're on the, it's Indianapolis. You can see this desiring to have because everything around you is about money, 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 money. I can totally hear the heart of how James was addressing some things that were good and some things that were out of balance. Consequently, the church doesn't exist today. The church that Steve and I went to and Amanda went to and Gertie went to doesn't exist. It, it closed, shut down probably two or three years after we all left. Not that we pulled the plug on it, but it imploded because that sounds like, oh, we left. And it, they were running, I don't know, Steve-O, four or 500. Yeah, it was a strong church, a lot of money. But verse four talks about this greed, avarice. You lust and you want stuff. And you kill to get it. Kill people, put them down. We know it's not literal murder. He that hates his brother is a murderer. You desire to have, that's lust. And you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and have uh, receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. This is all greed and wealth. So here's about the fourth time James is addressing riches and avarice and greed. And then he goes on to say, listen, all this desire to have makes you an adulterer and an adulteress against God. 13 and 17, through 13 through 17, goes on and talks about money again. He says, come on now, you that say we're going to go into such a city, we're going to start a business and get rich. Once again, he's dialing it back, all this chasing of money. And this is a great epistle to apply to the American dream. What you ought to say is, if God wills, I'll be a neurosurgeon. What you ought to say is, if God wills, I'll be an entrepreneur. What you ought to say is, if God wills, I'll go to college. 
We're not taught that as Americans. We're taught to dream a dream, then command God to bless it because this is my life and I'm uh, living my life like it's golden. Remember that, Steve-O? <laughs> we sang that song at church, which is a secular song. Living my life like it's golden, golden. Living my life like it's golden. Blah. I'm sure Peter hummed that when they crucified him upside down. <laughs> God Almighty crazy to think the places you get to walk through and thank God walk out. And then that brings us to chapter five. He, so he says, come on, you that say today or tomorrow we're going to such city by there, you're by so get gain what you ought to say is if the Lord will, we will do this. Verse five, which is the next verse, basic chapter five, verse one, weep and how you rich people. So one of the major themes of James is riches and be careful. The rich, the rich have already been addressed several times in this epistle. James keeps coming back to it. He can't escape it. He keeps coming back. And between his addressing of wealth and greed and avarice, he's dealing with all sorts of things, your mouth and your faith and wisdom and unity, but he keeps coming back to this. It's the strongest rebuke in the whole epistle. It would, if the word of faith had been true to scripture in some areas, they weren't all bad. We were word of faith. We're still kind of word of faith. But if we'd have stayed in James and not looked for it for faith, but looked for it for the totality of the passages, we might have been a lot more balanced in prosperity and not become the money whores the movement has become to this day. So let's start over chapter five, verse one, New Living Translation. They'll have it up behind me. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the troubles ahead of you. I think I'd start leaking some money. <laughs> There's no polite way to interpret that to fit anything encouraging. That's a serious call to judge yourself. And again, this didn't have to be said to Abraham because money wasn't a problem. This didn't have to be said to Job because money, this wasn't said to David. David had money. He wanted God more. This gets said, and actually verse three tells us why this has to be said. This gets said when you're greedy and you're stockpiling and hoarding up money and you refuse to do something for God with it. Verse two, your wealth is rotting away. The commentary I read says, and you'll understand it. In those days, wealth was also tied to food, grain supplies. So this is a literal reference to your food supplies are rotting away. You've hoarded up so much, you can't possibly eat it. It's rotting, doing nobody any good, not even you. So now we're talking about not being rich, being greedy rich. You have so much grain like the guy in Luke, I'll build bigger barns and take my ease. Well, that grain is only good for so long. And then what if it gets mildewed? You can't, you can only build a silo technically so high, then you got to start pouring it out the bottom. That's why when they load it, they load it in the top and they drain it out the bottom. You got to cycle it. So this, your riches, this is tied to food wealth because it was an agrarian society. We know this is a reference to food because it goes on to say, and your fine clothes. That's another reference to riches. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Remember Paul said, I have coveted no man's apparel. That was a very hoity-toity thing in that era. Still is to some to the, today, not in our region necessarily. I mean, not unless you're living on social media. And honestly, who cares about some of these names? It's a joke. I mean, I, I'm not against these water bottles, but now that's like the... The fad, who, how many Stanley Cups do you have? I don't know, ask the Red Wings. No, not that Stanley Cup. The $40 one that keeps your ice cold. 
Like, I don't drink water that slow. I mean, truth be told, I don't drink water. I just drink coffee and monsters. <laughs> I run on caffeine. People get, you know, it's not a Stanley. I saw something about a kid got arrested because they got in a fight with their mom because they bought him a cup, but it wasn't a Stanley cup. And that kid needs to be beat. I asked the police officer, can, can I test your stun gun? And he probably just said, just keep it. You're going to need it. <laughs> he says, your, your fancy clothes are moth-eating rags. I've told this story before concerning the church in Indy. It was such a hoity-toity money church. And because it, the pastor was hung up with name brands, there was a girl who was a Bible school graduate. She was a Rama graduate. And uh, she made some comment about how I was dressed. Steve will remember the story better. I, remember, I know where I'm going with it. And, uh, and she, she kind of made fun of my suit and tie and whatever I had on. And, and I said, well, you know, it's what I got. And she said, I bet my jeans cost more than your whole outfit. That's what she said to me at church. I found that in the verse right here. I bet, I don't know what the jeans were. I don't care. I bet my jeans cost more than your whole outfit. And I just happened to be wearing a Tom Jane's tie, which means nothing to nobody know how. And that's fine. One of you ended up with the tie, actually. Tom Jane's is a very high-end clothier. One of my friends used to work for. Their ties were folded the traditional way, which is a square meter of fabric that's folded to make it a tie. That's how ties were originally done. It's about a $280 tie. I got it for 30 bucks. Because my friend got it 70% off plus a discount. So I got like 30, 35 bucks. So she rips on me about that. And I said, well, this is a $280 tie. And with that, she dropped her head and walked away. I didn't tell her the rest of my clothes were cheaper than that. But this tie, <laughs> <laughs> this tie is a $280 Tom Jane's tie. Still means nothing. It's the only one I ever had. And again, one of you got it. Don't, don't go undoing the stitch to see if it really is a square meter. Because, you know, you'll never fold it back right. Ever. It'll be like a map. You just become like a big pocket. <laughs> your clothes, your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. That's how the Holy Spirit views our fashion. Who cares about the name tag? It was so known by a Chinese slave anyway. And you're in pride over some a kidnapped kid made for you. Yay, you. Clothes don't make you. Ethics do. And you apparently have none. Therefore, you're unmade. Hoity-toity over some tag. Unbelievable. Pastor Akwokwo had some outfits made for me. I, I know. I picked out the fabric. They came and measured it. And when I got so tickled, they, they took it to the clothier and they, they stitched it. They sewed it up for us in the same week. And I got them back. I mean, it's my fabric. I picked the fabric out, nice swatches of clothing. And they sewed in the back some label that wasn't the label. And then they sewed in the back, made in Korea. I kid you not, I'll wear it. I'll wear the outfit. I'm like, made in Korea? You just made it down the block in Itakotikipene. And it just tells you, like, somebody sewed it in. It ain't even honest. Why are we so hoity-toity about made in Korea? <laughs> Your gold and silver has become worthless. So we see the three forms of wealth, food supplies, clothing, now gold and silver. Your gold and silver has become worthless. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. What a way to talk to your big givers. 
this, this is, and this next part tells us, New Living Translation is a translation I don't agree with here. Other translations bring it out better. And that's a whole interpretation discussion. But the very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. All other translations say, King James says, you have heaped treasures together for the last days. Uh, new uh, TNT version says, you've piled up wealth while the world is coming to an end. NIV or another translation says, you've piled up treasures in the last days. That's the problem. You've heaped up and hoarded away money because it's the last days. These are believers. They were in Jerusalem. They didn't know when the Lord's coming back. They're still under the mindset it's going to happen any day now. So let's be preppers. Well, that spirit's nothing new. Let's hoard it up. Let's prep with tons of grain and not give it to anybody. This is why James says in, um, in the previous two chapters, if any man see a brother have something and you have it and don't give it to him, your faith is nothing. So years ago, now some of you folks would be a little offended. Uh, I didn't like Obama. It wasn't his skin color because he was half white. People forget that. I'm a white guy. I can relate to that part of him. I didn't like him because he was a progressive and an Islamist. And he hated my nation. Some of you voted for him and that's all right. Probably you see things clearer now. You don't realize what he did to our nation when he came into power. And it brought a spirit of fear. Even though he's a war hawk and he, boy, he firebombed some Muslims. Well, he, was, he, he ramped up the drone strikes unbelievably, way better than Bush ever did. I don't know how the Islamists felt about that, though they kept meeting with him every week in the Oval Office. But in that era, and you're talking almost 20 years ago now, the preppers came out of the woodwork and people were trying to teach me how to prep. And in those days, there was all sorts of talk about UN and NATO forces coming and taking over and it was the common vibe in Bible studies and prepper circles. You got to have, you need a shotgun. It's got to be tactical. You need a gun in every caliber. You need an AR-15. You need some hunting rifles. And you need at least a thousand rounds in every caliber. And then you want extra magazines because you can barter in that. Then you need bullion. And then you need canned goods and Patriot supply. And I don't know, all this other stuff, which is still out there hawking stuff. And buy it if you want to for emergencies. But so somebody said, aren't you prepping? And I said, you know, I'm a pastor. And this is how I can speak because I pastored through the Obama era. I said, I, I'm a pastor and I can hoard all I want. But if it really goes down like you're talking and the blue powder helmets come into town and my church needs something, my prep supply is gone tomorrow. So why would I waste money on that today? I can only feed a church once and then it's gone. And they got my batteries. They got my candles. Somebody going to get my AR-15 going to get shot with it. <laughs> Somebody's going to get my shotgun. So why would I even bother? And James is already addressing that. Quit hoarding. You're hoarding like he's coming back any day now and you're not distributing it like you ought to freely. And so he says, you have stockpiled, you have piled up wealth while the world is coming to an end. King James says that you have uh, heaped up treasure together for the last days. You think this is it, so you're just hoarding. And it's a, con it's a condemn mindset. Verse four, for listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. Now we can apply this to us today. The wages you held back cry out against you. Now we're talking about business ethics. 
these, these believers were apparently even defrauding their employees just to get ready, get ready, get ready. For what? If the Lord's coming, give it away. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies or the Lord of the Sabaoth, which just means the Lord of hosts. It's a Hebrew word. Sabaoth. You're worried about your fields. The Lord of heaven's armies is irritated. So now in order to be greedy, this is one of the problems the Lord has here with these believers. You got wealthy through greedy gain, through dishonesty, through filthy lucre, through underhanded devices. If you're going to be a business owner, be generous as much as you can. Be honest as much as you can. I, I Really, if I had to go back to the secular world, I would not work for Christians. I would not work for Christians. They're tightwads. This is generalization. Now, some of you are entrepreneurs, so don't be the stereotype. They're tightwads. They're pompous. They're self-righteous. And they're usually dirty. And they're dirty because they're lazy. I wouldn't want to work for them. All the secularists I worked for taught me business, business savvy, which is why they were bosses. I have no complaints against a single pagan boss I ever had. I have nothing but complaints about every Christian I ever worked for. Just my experience, but this is my truth. This is my pulpit. I'm going to tell my truth. Because that comes with an ironclad, you can't touch it in this culture. Well, what kind of truth is it? It's my truth. Oh, okay, well then, I'm sorry. Please continue. Should we have a flag or a hashtag for you? Do we give you a special pedigree now? An untouchable class? We should give you more privilege because it's your truth. Verse 5, we've gone nowhere tonight so far. <laughs> and it's 8.15. We're going to burn through this because next week is 1 Peter, uh, Peter 1. So we have like 14 verses. So just listen fast. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. So I got a couple notes on that. One version, Weymouth version says, you have lived self-indulgent, profligate lives. And this is as opposed to administrating your possessions judiciously for the glory of God. One translation says, the rich bless themselves like animals eating right before they're slaughtered. So some of these Greek phrases, they still have trouble trying to figure out exactly what's being communicated by the way the Greek language is laid out. That's why you can have a lot of different versions. But he's saying the rich people bless themselves and it's just like a dumb animal being fattened before it's butchered. We, we, we can watch it on social media. You see the rich, they got nothing else to spend their money on, so they drop it on a billion-dollar bunker and billion-dollar custom catamaran. and They're just fattening themselves before they're slaughtered. What if, what if that's you as a Christian? Give away as much as you can. The Lord will replace it. Give that away and the Lord will replace that. Give that away and the Lord will replace that. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Now we're talking about just very corrupt business dealings. And remember, he's, this is written to the believers. If you don't believe there's corrupt business leaders in this community who go to church... You don't know some of the people I know and the churches they go to. I look at them and think, I'm so glad you don't go to my church. Not that they're murdering people. Please don't. Pastor Chris said there's people murdering people in Cookful. And <laughs> it's not what I'm saying. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient 
Some of these, let me back up. Here's one of the big problems. When you're a Christian business owner, you want to hire people because you want to bless them. But there's a double responsibility when you hire your own brother or sister in Christ. There's a double responsibility. So you have to be careful. And I'm not against hiring even people you go to church with, but you got to go to church with them too. So I wonder how many cases here, the very folks he was writing to in church were taking advantage to the, of the other people he was writing to in church. And I wonder if this epistle's being read and that field worker's going, boy, he's nailing my boss to the wall. What, what boldness does it take to chew out this person because of their mistreating this person and calling it a business deal? Maybe this is why we didn't ever teach these passages in James during the Word of Faith revival because it undermined the rich guys that were funding our jets. Submit, I'm your boss. How about take care of me? I'm your employee. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Why? In light of all this, all this mistreatment, the rich running ramshod, the Lord's not against the rich. The Lord's against the corrupt. And remember, as we've said, let's hear it again, no other epistle addresses rich people like this. This is, a, this is an interesting scenario. It's a young church, 14, 15 years post-ascension. And we're dealing with issues here. Part of the cultural mindset is, number one, they're Jewish, so they're used to wealth. Remember, Jesus said it's difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. And the Jews were like, well, then who can be saved? Because the concept was, if you serve God, he's going to make you rich. Well, no, apparently if you're greedy and corrupt, you can be rich too. So we have a lot of mixing of culture here. You have the Jewish water and culture coming into the Christian water and culture. We're mixing it, and we're starting off with the baby church, and we're trying to fix some doctrine and move things forward. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmer who patiently, the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable, har valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. This is a word of encouragement for anybody who's mistreated, mishandled, abused. Uh, maybe you work for the corrupt business owner and he, he misuses you. He uses you as a field hand but doesn't pay you. He's stockpiling that wheat, doesn't give you any of it, and it's just rotting in his farm and you know it. And the Lord's having to encourage those guys, be patient, the Lord is coming. Be patient, it's going to be okay. There's an a, a, a exhortation here for every one of us. King James says in verse 8, establish your heart. I like that better than the New Living Translation. New Living Translation says take courage. But when it's an understood you and it's a commandment and it tells you specifically what to do, establish your heart, that means and that's your responsibility. No matter what you're facing, let's, now let's take it out of this historical, um, cultural context. Let's apply it to us. No matter what we're going through, it is our responsibility to establish our heart. Take courage. You have to take courage. I can't give it to you. If I give it to you and you don't take it, I still can't give it to you. You have to establish your heart. You're going through hell. You're going through a battle. You have to establish your heart. How do I do that? Speak the word. Encourage yourself in the promises of God. Rehearse them. Remind yourself, I'm well able. Remind yourself, God is faithful. Remind yourself, this thing will turn. Like we read in the offertory, there's good days and there's bad days and they're set against each other so that we don't know the end from the beginning, but God's in charge. Right. Establish yourself. Don't fall apart. 
Don't quit. Don't whine. Bless God, don't post it on social media fishing for affirmation. Establish yourself. Don't go on Reddit asking, what should I do? James tells you, establish yourself. Verse 9, don't grumble about each other. Oh, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Pretty short and to the point. King James says, grudge not one against the other. Uh, a couple versions say, don't groan against each other. Don't blame your troubles on one another. Pastor Vaughn would have said, I'm not your problem and you're not mine. I'm not your problem. You're not mine. Don't blame your troubles on your spouse. Take ownership. Own it. Try to own everything else. Our socialist government wants to own everything but responsibility. Hard to like a government that blames everything on everybody but themselves. Can they not smell their own ineptitude? Do they not know the bigger a bureaucracy gets, the more incompetent it becomes? Why does it take the government two years to get me my tax return, but they want my money in four weeks? Or there's going to be a penalty. Can I charge you a penalty? We give you permission to breathe our air. Do you now? Don't grumble about each other. Grumbling, murmuring, complaining. When, this is a commentary. Grumbling, murmuring, complaining over real or even imagined grievances. Real or imagined. Sometimes it's a familiar spirit that turns you against your brother or sister in Christ. The Bible says, just shut up. 1 Corinthians 10.10 10 says, Neither murmur ye. As some of the Jews murmured and were destroyed. <laughs> That'll dry up murmuring real quick. Maybe you should write it on, put that on your post-it note on your mirror and refrigerator. Murmuring kills. <laughs> murmuring is the whistle that calls the destroyer to your camp. They murmured and serpents destroyed them. So just start murmuring and see what kind of demon slithers in under your tent. That'll dry it up. I'm blessed. I'm really blessed. I'm blessed. Oh, I'm so thankful. We have all sorts of type of people in our church. People I like, people I don't like. Happy people, sad people, miserable people, joyful people. I love our people. And I hate destroyers. That's why he says, don't grumble for look. The judge is standing at the door. I can relate to this as a parent. My kids get to squabbling. If they're not careful, they look up and I'm standing at the door watching them. I've come to administer judgment. Both of you go stand by the paddle. Get to grumbling. You'll look up and God will be looking at the door. And he, you, like, where'd he come from? There he is. And he ain't happy. Verse 10, for examples of patience and suffering. You know what? If you'd have some suffering and some patience, you wouldn't grumble so much. How much do we easily squawk over? I mean, we have such a hairpin trigger. We just start grumbling over everything. Oh, just lame. Just Lame. Look, we were grumbling over it being iced over last week, and now the city's crowded. We're grumbling over that. And God looks down at us and says, you can never be happy, can you? You're never going to be happy. You're not going to like heaven. There's a lot of people up here. <laughs> For examples of patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. These were holy men. These were anointed men. These were prophets. Some of these wrote scripture, and it did not exempt them from hard times. It did not exempt them from attacks, buffeting, and hard times. We think if we live clean, we're super anointed, we'll never go through anything hard. 
Moses went through a lot. Elijah went through a lot. David went through a lot. These were holy men. Isaiah went through a lot. Jeremiah went through a lot. Ezekiel went through a lot. Daniel went through a lot. Look to them. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. This, there's a, a, a translation here. Endurance produces the joy of victory. It's kind of the implication. Endurance produces the joy of victory. To know you went through it and you came out the other side. The, the Greek is past tense. We count them happy who had endured. We don't count anybody happy who's in the midst of it. So let's be realists. It is, it's the, the, the language is we count them happy who did endure. Why? Because they made it. We don't count them happy who halfway endured then quit because they're quitters. But there's a joy that comes through endurance. It's the joy of victory. I didn't quit. I made it to the other side. I went through a hard season. Now I'm in a prospering season. And that's awesome. That's a, that's a relief. And then get ready for a hard season. And it's a cycle that builds us stronger and stronger. And if you can recognize these cycles coming, you don't fall apart. You'll say, well, whew, I think it's a hard season. Oh, here we go. All right. Made it through the last 20. Going to make it through this one. Maybe a little tougher. All right. Let's make it a little tougher. Make it a little tougher. And it builds your endurance. It builds your endurance. I use the example next week. I talk about uh, squatting, you know, weights, weighted squats, 225. If you've never squatted 225, that's your benchmark. That's your Goliath. And it's, it's the biggest thing in your life. And you squat it and you got your spotter and you don't know if you're going to tear your pants or tear something or just fall out. And then you get it and you beat it. And you know what? Every time you go to squat again, you still have to hit the same number. So whatever is your hell today becomes your status quo tomorrow. And you're like, that's what used to intimidate me? I can't believe that was once the thing that stopped me. And now I just step over it every day doing the next thing. Now it's the thing I deal with before 8 o'clock in the morning. That was the thing I faced every day for seven months. Today I'm done with it by 8.30 every morning. The problem is when you spend your whole life afraid of 225 and you never bother to rack it. You just talk it. I'm one of these days, one of these days, I believe I receive one of these days. You're never going to get it. You don't believe nothing. At least say, let's start off at 135 and go from there. We count them happy, which endured because they passed through to the other side. For instance, it says, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. Well, he went through a tough season and came out better. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Maybe be encouraged that no matter what you are going through, if you'll walk with God, do what you're trained to do. Click on your light. Don't downgrade it. You'll come through and enjoy the goodness and the tender mercy of God. But please judge and make sure that everything you hit is a new obstacle, a little harder. Sit there if you have to, like Abraham, in the, tent of the, of your, at the door of your tent in the heat of the day and just go... It's a hot one today. Not as hot as yesterday. It's pretty hot. Ah, but I can do it. I'm well able. Instead of always running and cowering. If you're still here, you still got a chance to win this thing. We ain't put you in the ground yet. Some of you we're not going to put in the ground. We're just going to cremate you and put you in the air. I want to do something so sacrilegious with ashes at some point. I don't know what I want to do. I want to do like confetti cannons. I want one of you to die sometime, not anytime soon. One of you, when you die, I don't want you, you're all going to die. 
if we don't hit the rapture, you're going to all die. We're going to die? Yes, just not today. Am I going to die? Yes. One of you, I want you to leave it in your will. I want to be cremated and I want pastor to shoot me off in confetti cannons. I really want to do that. Just everybody take them home with you. Just love on them. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Roll down your windows if you must. You know, just let it all. <laughs> I'm sure God will be able to give you a resurrected body. There are honestly debates. There are theological debates. You can't be cremated. What will he do in the resurrection? Ask the guys that were cremated at Nero's orgies. Well, okay, so I bury you and a worm comes along and eats you and poops you out. And then a tree root grabs a hold of that poop, grows an apple out of it. That apple drops. Somebody picks up that apple, takes it to Connecticut, eats it, <laughs> poops it out. And the cycle continues. And we got you all over the Eastern seaboard. <laughs> Where's steve -O? I guess the resurrection of the dead couldn't fix him. Worms got him. <laughs> I think God, I think he can do it. I, we, we believe he can do the impossible, right? Let's keep reading here. <laughs> Verse 12. Most, but most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath. By heaven or earth, just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Basically, above all else, King James says, above the last 15 commandments, just be a man of your word. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your word. Write it down. Put reminders. Do what you can to keep your word. If your word becomes important to you, you'll have faith that God's word is important to him. We don't believe God's word is important to him because we don't believe our word's important to us. We make promises to our kids. They learn by the time they're five. We don't keep them. They're going to have trouble trusting a God who keeps his word because mom and dad are their little God and they don't keep their word. We have to be men and women of our, men and women of our word. If you can't keep it, don't give it. Or at least make an exception or a caveat. Say, if the weather permits, if we're able to, I want to do this. But don't say you're going to move heaven and earth and come home and fall asleep. You're going to hurt your kid's faith. Verse 13, are any of you suffering hardships? Post it to social media so all your friends can pat you on the back. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Novel idea. Are any of you happy? Post it to social media and humble brag about it. No, you should sing praises. When's the last time we stopped and sang a song because something good happened to us? When's the last time we stopped and said, God is so good. God is so good. When's the last time we sang, you are so good to me because of something good? Oh, I've got to post it. Gotta, and there's nothing wrong with sharing it, but how about you share it with God first to give him praise? Stop and sing a simple song every time you see God's hand move. Are any of you sick? Skip church, don't tell anybody, then get mad because nobody comes to pray for you. Any of you sick? Complain about it, post about it to get as much sympathy as you can. Exploit it, manipulate it, because you like it. You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you. It's your job, it's not mine. It's your job. If you're sick... Figure out why you're sick. 
fix it. If you can fix it. If not, just we'll, come, we'll come pray for you. And we'll pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer, we just covered this Sunday night, such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you will be forgiven. One commentary pointed out, we don't know whose faith is doing the healing here. Is it yours, the sick person? Because there's biblical examples of that. It's us doing the praying, because there's biblical examples of that. Or is that somebody who called and helped get you there? Maybe it's their faith, like the, the, lip, uh, the crippled man born of four friends whose faith got him healed. We don't care whose faith. We're not picky. We're not giving gold medals for whoever had the faith. We, the gold medal is the healing. We'll take it any way we can get it. Verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We see that the prayer of faith, we see that anointing oil and confessing faults and praying for each other, it brings healing. God's word is for us to be healed. God's will is for us to be healed. All these different ways for us to be healed. Sickness is not the will of God. Sickness is not the will of God. Ah, it teaches me something. You can learn faster if you read. You can learn much faster. I don't have to learn anything by six weeks of sickness. I can probably read it in a paragraph. So can you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say sickness is an educator. Holy Spirit is. Teachers are. The Word is. God is. But nowhere does sickness educate. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I like that translation. The earnest, that means fervent, not this little mealy mouth Methodist stuff. <laughs> earnest prayer of a righteous that means you got to be clean too holy has great power and produces wonderful results let's pray Pastor Cuoco said over and over again we have to pray till we get results pray till you get results well let me ask you this and we're getting ready to close here you've been patient we're going to finish this epistle Sometimes the withheld answer is used to show how bad we really don't want something. Sometimes we just give up and cope. In my own life, I, there's been a few things I've just given up. I was like, well, I just is never going to be. And the Lord's so gracious. I'll preach something that kicks me in the rear end. Or the Holy Spirit will minister and say, I'm still waiting to hear you talk to me about that. Which reactivates my hope that it'll come to pass which means he's not done. He still wants to give it to me and I don't have the explanations, but we haven't connected yet. My prayers haven't connected. My, my faith hasn't engaged or ignited yet. I don't have all the explanations, but when I get ready to walk away from some things and I'm like, well, that's just, this is gonna be it the rest of my life. I'll move on to other areas. Got plenty of other irons in the fire. That one's just never gonna mold the way I want it to. I'll start to walk away I'll preach something. A guest minister will preach something. The Lord will speak something to me. I'll read something. And it basically tells me, don't you dare quit this. And this is where you're like, wow, but it's been so long. All right. Well, what else are you going to do, moron? Time's going to pass anyway. Might as well stay in faith over it. All right. All right. You shake yourself off and go back into believing God for this thing, no matter what it is. Verse 17, Elijah was as human as we are. We need to be reminded of that. One translation says he was just like us. Another says he was of similar weakness with us. He prayed earnestly, not limp-wristedly, not sissified, not quiet, not hushed, not some way, somehow, some way, somehow, some way, somehow. <laughs> 
He prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, and none did for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again earnestly, First Kings says he had his head between his knees, bowed over in fervent prayer. He prayed again, and the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. What a promise that I talk about it in the botany book. Elijah's probably a little schizo. He was manic depressive. We would probably think he needs some medicine because he goes from the highs of revival to suicide within a day, three days. You go from confident. Where's all the prophets at? Kill them. God, where are you at? I need fire. Where's Jezebel at? I'm going to kill her. And outruns a horse and chariot. And then Jezebel says, here I am, and you're a dead man. And then he says, Lord, I just want to die. That's a messed up dude. That's us before lunch. <laughs> Excited? And then, I just want to die. Such a what happened to your Wheaties that you had at breakfast and made you feel like a million bucks singing God is so good? Now, some way, somehow, come please let me die. If he can be that emotionally unstable and still connect with God and do miracles and he wasn't born again, and he wasn't spirit-filled, and he was in the process of being part of the Bible canon, what can we do? Well, that rain and no rain was God's will. Yes, and everything you're believing God for is also God's will because you're basing it on Scripture. Amen. And you don't need a nation to get rain. You just need your family to get a little bit of rain. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth... And is brought back. It's interesting that's dovetailing on the end of fervent prayer. Because it lets us know we shouldn't just use prayer to gimme, gimme, gimme. We should use prayer to turn people back to God. Something else the faith message missed out on. My brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death. And we cannot... We cannot underestimate the power of sin to kill our loved ones who are backsliding. This is not a positive way to end this epistle. There is no yes and amen and may God grant you the desires of your heart. Somebody's going to die. Pray and stop it. See you later. That's it. That's the end of the epistle. There's no closure. There's no God bless, God speed, his spirit be with you. He doesn't end it like Paul does. He ends it with like, save somebody. Quit chasing money. Chase people. And he starts with the believers. You can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. That should encourage us that whoever your loved one is that you're believing God for, you keep interceding. You keep quit feeling sorry for yourself and thinking you should have done more. Probably. But all you can do is do better now. So the number one thing you do is you pray darkness off of them. Pray them miserable. Pray the sun opens up over their pig pie. Pray they accidentally snort some of it up their nose. And they realize, wait a minute, this, this isn't chocolate pudding. This is sin. Pray their eyes are open. Pray their senses are open. Pray that they're disgusted at their own sin. Because you can't force them to repent, but you can pray all obstacles out of their way. Use your fervent prayer to do that. Not just healing. That's how it began. Not just rain. That's how it was the middle part. Now we're talking about turning people back to Christ, your loved ones. So don't, don't come to me crying if you're not praying. What do I do? Shut up and pray. 
What do you mean, what do you do? How long have you been in my church for? Just pray. Pray fervently. Say, Lord, I command darkness off of them. You live inside them, Jesus. Make them miserable till they repent. May they bite down on a hard corn kernel in that pig pie and realize there was plenty of righteous living where I came from. I'm going back. Pray them back. Pray them born again. Pray them delivered so something good can come of the rest of their life. Amen. That concludes James' epistle. If you look at it, it's totality not real encouraging. Not even to a bunch of outcast vagabonds who've been scattered. Then again, I think if we read the epistles in context, there ain't a lot of encouragement in most of it. He's talking to strangers in the last days, persecuted on every circle and every angle. And he's saying, just want you to make it and look, look like Jesus as you make it. We had to cherry pick scriptures to build encouraging messages. We're not against that. And I'm not against picking topics, but when you do read them in context, you can hear how they're addressing a congregation just like us with an issue that needs to be hammered over and over and over again until we get it. So two big themes, unity and quit chasing money. Those are the two major themes of James as as we've seen in the last five weeks.